0: You're listening to Building a Better Brand, and I'm your host, Tony Triumph, founder of The Triumphant Group. And I'm here to share the stories behind my friends who are industry innovators, my buddies who are movers and shakers, as well as my fellow clients, colleagues, and the go-getters of today that have helped both big and little brands be a big success. Whether you're a big brand, a little brand, an indie brand, or run a multi-million dollar company, I'd love for you to listen up. Because we're here to empower you through our world of tips and tools to help you build a better brand. Welcome to our world. My next guest on building a better brand is Christine Noh, CEO of Noble and also a good friend of mine. Noble is a New York and New Jersey-based sneaker and streetwear company whose roots date all the way back to 1982 with the opening of its first store, which back then was called Olympic Town. Fueled by its love for sneakers and streetwear, Olympic Town eventually grew to several stores in New York City and New Jersey, though in 2012, Olympic Town transformed into what we now know today as Noble. Noble is now a family-run business with five locations between Manhattan, the Bronx, Passaic, and Newark. And their business model was actually a play on their name, treating their staff, customers, and community like nobility hence the name noble gotta love that all five of their stores are now headed up by christine's leadership whose adventures we'll hear all about during this episode what i've grown to love about noble is the fact that and of course you'll hear christine dive into all this is that it's a truly an American dream story of a family-owned business that's literally paved itself to success and is seeing the fruits of its labor through hard work, resilience, and dedication to a vision. They've actually put in the work as pillars of their community. From not only helping you get your hands and feet into some of the hottest and most exclusive sneakers on the market, but also from their involvement with local issues and staying up to date on matters from the community that quite frankly Allow them to not only better serve their customers, but also give back in ways that keep them grounded as a business. Philanthropic values that are truly important as you build your best brand. This episode is all about building, owning, and operating a successful retail business. So whether you're running an e-com shop, physical store, or building up your own sneaker or apparel brand you'll definitely get something out of this episode of building a better brand. You'll see. Listen up. I bet, 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 bet. Yo, so I just want to, I want this to be super, thank you for doing this, by the way. Like I-
1: Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I think this- been- I love that you're doing this. And I, and I love the idea of of telling people stories and bringing, mm-hmm. bringing people together and-
0: You don't really promote yourself, but your story is so like killer, you know? Like and I, I really you. think
1: I am. I am. I have to. I have to speak to all my brand management marketing friends mm-hmm. on the reg to try to force myself to do a little bit more of this. So thank you for forcing me to do something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean I usually don't. Right. So I think. But what has been really impressed upon me the last, you know, few years, increasingly more, but really, really more recently, is just how much it's important to have other viewpoints out there so like just like you said right people who are in different phases of their of their development right and because sometimes when you do hear from people who are you know the ceo of l'oreal right like that seems so far off. right it's hard to even imagine that it's reality versus even when we we had the talk on friday we're speaking to a lot of high school and college-age students Mm -hmm. And so one of the asks was like, hey, can you please pick pick speakers who are kind of in their age group? Right. Because we don't want it to be something where like people who are so far removed that the kids can't really identify to that experience or that level of achievement to understand like it's like an iterative process Mm -hmm. that things don't happen overnight. And like it's a grind. Right. And so like if you just see the shiny, happy ending kind of thing. That it makes the process along the way seem like it's not real or it's so impossible to overcome because that isn't that isn't necessarily where everyone is in their like development, right? So I think that and then two is just like having people represent you. So representation, you know, increasingly like just I think maybe also even because i'm in an age group where like i didn't get a lot of that when i was coming up right right? right. that almost i don't even know what i might have lost from the experience because it wasn't there to begin with right Mm -hmm. and increasingly seeing how much that's being valued by everyone and like helps you navigate because you're just like oh my god that same thing happened to me and you're like wow really me too right and so yeah i just think like opportunities like this are are ones that we have to continue to do and amplify our voices and like connect with each other because that's the only way that you know we're going to be able to to do anything meaningful or make any change. Right, right,
0: right. Facts. That that is all facts. Facts, 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 facts. facts. But we're also like entrepreneurial. That's another thing I want to talk about too. Like the difference between the new school and the old school. Like we're we're so entrepreneurial. Like and it's almost like a different way of thinking. Like if I'm not talking to a CEO that's like an entrepreneur as well, you can yeah. tell that the synergy is just not going to work out because you you don't get how I think and the way that you think is is so old school that it's kind of like killing your business, you know, because it's, it's no longer a box that we have to think in. Like there's no formula, you know, there's no formula for anything that we're doing these days.
1: hundred percent. You know,
0: so let's get into your story though. Like who, you know, we... Tell us about your why. You know, I always like to ask that question when we start off. Like, tell us about your why. The story. I, I found it really interesting. You know, you guys launched Olympic Town in 1982. Like, I, I want to know. Like, was that like a weird? Whose idea was that? Was it mommies? Was it daddy's? Was was were they just being entrepreneurial? That do they love sneakers? Do your parents like rock Jordans? Like, are, are they <laughs> are they MJ fans? Are they LeBron fans? What, what's the deal? Like, I just I just want to know the whole gamut behind like.
1: my dad is known to rock a pretty decent camo fit every now and then but so starting with my parents and kind of getting into how i ended up here myself is so in 1982 they started my parents are very much in some ways like your almost stereotypical american dream story so they are immigrants they're both Korean, came here. My dad came here in the late 70s, my mom a little after that. They actually met in New York, so they didn't know each other before. But, you know, my dad had an opportunity to work at a, an apparel store um, somewhere downtown. And he kind of just saw how it worked and felt like he could do it himself. And especially when English is not your first language, and you come here with pretty much nothing, there aren't that many opportunities for growth unless you make one for yourself, right? And so he started just hustling. They, you know, started selling out of flea markets and eventually were able to get to the point where they scrapped their coins together and opened up a store in 1982. And then, so I like grew up in the back of a store in the Bronx. There's a photo of me somewhere on my Instagram that is like maybe one of my favorite photos, but it's me with like a, Size like 12 or 13 e tonic, which at the time I thought was like the largest shoe I'd ever seen (laughs) and was like for a giant. So it's like me smiling, like super cheesing with this like giant shoe on my foot. Yeah, I, I grew up in a store. So this business is what helped put me through college. And so I went to Dartmouth and I studied economics and government. And so originally when I graduated, I went into finance and I worked at JP Morgan. And I did that for a few years, and I was actually there during the financial crisis, and everyone knows how crazy that experience was, and how much it impacted everything in America. After having lived through that, I wasn't sure if this is what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I took a little time off. I had some time to try to think and figure that out, but in the meantime, my parents being very typical you know, Asian parents and immigrant parents were like, what are you doing right now? Thinking Mm -hmm. like come to the office and fax something or write an email for us or do something. Right. So like, it's like, all right, cool. I'll come and help you guys out here and there while I'm still trying to figure out who I want to be when I grow up. And that turned into, Hey, do you want to let me look at your books? And Hey, how come you guys do things this way? And how come you do it that way? And why don't we do this? And have you ever thought about that? And it just eventually turned into a sit down with them to be like hey guys i actually think that i could add a lot of value to what you've been able to build so far and be able to transition us into what i think the next phase of of this business of retail of what you know being in the sneaker industry looks like etc and that was in 2010 so i around then started to get you know officially involved and then 2012 is when we rebranded as noble and I have been here doing this now for can't believe it but 10 years
0: so was it not was it not second nature for them to say like hey Christine we're grooming you because you have a brother as well like were, were they not specifically grooming you guys to take over the business you you had
1: absolutely not so
0: what so they did not have any kind of like long-term game plan.
1: No, I think they, you know, I think the thing about what they started doing was it was something that worked to provide for their family, right? And so it wasn't it wasn't done in sort of like an intentional manner. And the other thing is my parents never wanted myself or my brother to feel like we were being forced to take on this mantle. If we came to that decision by ourselves, you know, they were okay with that and they supported that decision, but they wanted us to do whatever we wanted to do. That's why it was, it was something that really was a a family conversation versus, you know, ever, me ever. If you had asked me when I graduated college, if I was going to be doing this right now, the answer would have been no. I had no, no thought that this would be the way that my life was going to end up.
0: Interesting. That is so, that is, mm-hmm. that is not what I was expecting to hear. I thought, Like <laughs> I thought you would have said, Hey, like we started this as a, as a family. I worked in it. I never had a job in my life. Like, my parents groomed me. I was like put into the role of store manager when I was 18, and then from there, da 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 da. And now, I mean, don't oh. get it
1: twisted. I was, I was every Christmas, um, usually in a store from like 12, 13, 14, just like standing next to a cashier, taking alarms off of clothes, and like folding things, and and you know, helping in every way, shape, or form. So I have absolutely grown up in this business, but it was never a thing that you know my parents. Made myself or my brother feel like we had to come back and run the family business. It was they wanted to give us every opportunity, you know, to help us get the best education we can get so that we can go off and do and be whoever we wanted to to be when we grow up. So I'm actually really appreciative of that because. I know some people who they're, they don't have parents who are as open-minded or they feel very like they're stuck with a situation that was kind of grandfathered in for them. And that was not my experience at all.
0: Interesting, interesting. So let's talk about this name change because I, I think that's a huge branding tidbit that a lot of people get stuck on. And a lot of people go through rebrands and restructures and you know, trying to determine their why. You know, they, they're in business for 20, 30 years and they think it's, it's brand suicide to change your brand. So tell me about the role you played, and you know that iconic name change. I, I love that you said it. It, it represents no bull, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so run me, run me through that process, because that was what thirty years, you know, later that you, that you came up and you said, hey. I'm changing the name. Like did they if you push back Did they say no? What the hell are you talking about? This is out, you know, we're Olympic Town.
1: No, actually, so I think the one thing that has been very helpful is that they have recognized that myself, my brother, we're gonna come with fresh ideas that are gonna be different than what they're used to. And they understand that, you know, a lot of the industry has changed, a lot of the core consumers closer to our age group than it is theirs, all of that, right? So they very much were willing to listen. It came about for a couple different reasons. So one was we wanted to really demonstrate that this was not business as usual, that we were really implementing a change and keeping, you know, and paying homage to the heritage of what they built, but ultimately understanding and recognizing that uh, this is going to be a, a different organization than what had come previously and to usher in kind of like the next phase of our growth and development right? So one. Two is there actually was a little bit of a hiccup. So a lot of changes happen with like reality, right? right. So everyone kind of usually says like, oh yeah, we just had this inspirational like saw <laughs> <Right>. moment <laughs> and <when laughs> it came to. No, that's like totally not what happened. We, we were revamping the business. We're doing all of these things. We're figuring out, hey, what, what needs to change system-wise, structure-wise, all of that. And as we're doing that like deep dive analysis, I go okay. Well, let's make sure that we get you know properly set up website wise and and email and all that stuff. And I actually, got an email from the U.S. Olympic Committee that told us that we can't really use the word Olympic. Wow. Right? wow. Yeah. So, so legal stuff in there. <laughs> legal stuff, real and so. You know, logically makes sense. They uh, existed before we did. So (laughs) so that prompted us also like, okay, well, I think, you know, on top of that, let's really think through, well, this might be a great reason for having to rebrand, right? So then came the really hard part of, okay, so we want to do this. We're okay with the idea of doing this what is this name going to be? And so that took a little bit more effort and work, but eventually what we landed on was noble and it really was a great fit for a couple different reasons, right? So it's an homage to our last name, right? And kind of paying respect to the original ownership heritage of the business. Uh, So hence it's spelled N-O-H-B-L-E versus typical spelling. The other thing was just, you know, kind of the concept of being noble, uh, of really being a organization that's grounded in the community that we're not doing you know shady things that do happen around us in the industry with you know people trying to charge you know for for sneakers that aren't authentic or anything like that right you've probably heard a ton of horror stories
0: 100 percent, definitely
1: yeah so like just You know that that we're we're not into any of that that everything we carry we get from the actual manufacturer that we deal with and things like that so we wanted to really emphasize that aspect of being noble in this business and then the other thing of like just kind of playing off of like no bull of like no bullshit right and just saying that you know we're we're trying to be as authentic as we possibly can as tied into the community as we possibly can that there aren't a lot of layers of fluff and that we're really here to just try to be the best version of a retail partner within the communities that we live and work in so that's how that happens authenticity
0: sells my friend we know that (laughs) so about the olympics though i just find that so funny why I mean, were you guys growing? Were y'all scaling? Were y'all opening new stores? Why Why did they wait thirty years to to come after y'all about this name?
1: I don't think we were on their radar until I started buying domains and figuring out what um, trademarking logos and doing all of these things that you know anyone who may be starting right now would would think is you know key part and parcel to building a brand. Right. But because my parents had started the, this in the in the 80s and they also came with not a professional business background that was just not something that crossed their mind so as i started doing all of these things i guess that's when i got on their radar and so they sent me a letter being like hi so you can't actually (laughs) keep running with this and i was like oh okay Um, almost like oh we were being
0: nice but now that you actually
1: (laughs) no they were actually very very nice about it and they were like yeah you know we know that you've been around forever they gave me a ton of time to like just you know, once you make the transition, please let us know. But it was just like, hey, like, however, it it was very clear that if I kept pushing on this, that I was, I was going to get more letters from more lawyers, right? So I was like, okay, thanks. Um, hey, mom and dad, like, we got to come up with a new name. Um, So So that was, that was the combination of everything.
0: Right. That is, I mean, that's, That is a very key way to play an iconic role in Olympic Town's name change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that was a it was funny to me, honestly, because I was like, so we got a letter from the U.S. Olympic Committee. You know, it they were really, really great about it. And it also, you know, helped us. I think the thing about being an entrepreneur and sometimes figuring things out as you go is that sometimes there's these moments that. Um, are kind of serendipitous in some way right Right. so like you know normally you would have been like oh shit this is a huge problem we have to change every awning of of everything we have to change every business card we have to change like all of this other documentation oh my god this is overwhelming right Right. but on the flip side it helped us that when we were going through this rebranding we picked a name that did work for us we made sure that it well, it wasn't going to be an issue with trademarks because we did that research in advance, right? We made sure that, you know, we then went ahead and made sure that we then trademarked it for ourselves, right? So it was a really, really good early on in the process learning experience to make sure that we, you know, dotted our I, yeah, dotted our I's and crossed our T's correctly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in some ways, like thanks Olympics committee for the, <laughs> for the assist because you forced me to do some work that I might not have done as early
0: on in this process as I did. Right, 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 right. So let's let's get into your while while we're talking about that role that you played, let's talk about you know your daily role as a CEO. What what is the most important to you like when you wake up like today is Sunday, you you're literally like you know, we you're like, hey, I'm going into the office. Let's do this, let's record early. So I'm like, okay, she's she's in this, in this. Like she does not have a nine to five CEO schedule. She's literally like Monday through Sunday in the office. So like what what is it that keeps you so driven <laughs> to to be the best that you can? And what is your mission and purpose, you know, every day when you wake up and you're walking out this role as as CEO Christine?
1: So I think the thing is, is that kind of going back to that sit down that I mentioned with my family when I was like, hey, rather than help you, you know, while I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next, whether that's go to business school or go work somewhere else in the finance industry, because that's what originally I was thinking about doing, that I would rather actually come on and really do this like full steam ahead. And in that conversation, I understood what I was asking of them to put faith in me. And I understood the tremendous amount of responsibility that meant, because this is not me just saying like, hey, XYZ company. It's like, hey, parents, right? And so I felt even more of a sense of responsibility that I do this, knowing that I wasn't doing this on a whim, knowing that I actually felt that I would add real tangible value to the company, to the organization, and to everything that they had already done. So I think that sense of responsibility is really what makes me work the way that I'm working right now. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm kind of a workaholic to begin with. It's sort of my personality. So it's it's not the worst thing ever, but for sure right now, especially like 2020 has been the most insane year for everyone. So definitely us included in that. So I think, you know, all the more so it's being focused on what the end goal is and knowing and hoping that and making sure that, frankly, that the actions that you're taking are helping to drive towards that end goal. And then right now, you know, I kind of consider myself like chief problem solver. Like that's the mode that I'm in right now, right? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. There's so much that changes. We were closed for almost three months because of COVID and just all of the up and down that that created. And so, you know, right now my priority is solve problems as they present themselves but are we making sure that the steps we are taking to solve those problems continue to push us towards what our end goal is for you know this year for overall as we position ourselves within the marketplace etc and if the answer is yes to those things and it's like this is the solution to this problem then how do i actually implement it right and so my brain right now at least is on 24 7 i could be like on a Saturday, sitting there watching a movie, I'll have a thought and then I'll like grab my phone and just like take a quick note down or, or, you know, we use Slack. So like I'll Slack message somebody within the company just be like, Hey, reminder on Monday, I have this idea, like, let's talk about it. So that's just kind of what my, what my day to day at this moment looks like Mm -hmm. and how I try to make sure that everything is aligned as we're moving along.
0: I mean, that's, that's like love, that's love and passion because there's no way that you're not going to not check out. For your personal time if you don't enjoy what you're doing and i I think that's a sentiment too you know i had this conversation with a friend a couple years ago and and she was just saying we work so much we work all the time do you realize that and i'm like i don't consider it work when i like it's three o'clock in the morning and i get an idea and i just have to type it out or put a memo a note in my memo and say hey highlight this person on monday because this is you know really this is what's gonna take your your, your business or this idea is, is, is lit. Like, you know, this is something that you need to be focusing on. So I think I would that's that's pretty much the same that's what you're saying. Huh?
1: Yeah, and I do that I do that not only just with things that are for noble, but I'll do that with like my friends. So I'll see something like randomly while I'm scrolling through the gram and I should be asleep. Like I'll come across something and I'll I'll you know share that with a friend and like shoot your DM and be like, hey, you should totally look into this, especially right now. Like I have even said yeah, that's about to right? say, so yeah, I was
0: like, Yo, yeah, you, I do all the time. <laughs> you
1: right? do that all So the time. Like, hey, this grant program, you know, share it with people that you know, like maybe somebody might actually like qualify for this or it's up your alley, or hey, I saw this opportunity. So like my brain is always kind of in that entrepreneurial sort of hunting mode and so even if it's not something that directly applies to me like i'm always texting friends sending you dms like whatever it is just because i really want people to to be able to build grow and like how do we do that by helping each other so if i come across something that might be relevant to you like i'm sending you a text at one in the morning sorry (laughs) no
0: no no apology needed i never ever tell anybody to apologize for message because i hate when my friends feel like they can't message me. Like, especially like if we're all in business together, like ping me. I might not respond until like 24 hours, but just, just say it. Like, cause I don't want you to forget like <laughs> ideas. Of, yeah.
1: yeah That'd be worse. You right? know? Like, yeah.
0: That would be way worse if you forgot, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. you Who
1: knows what happens in the morning. Right. So if I don't send it to you in the moment I see it, it's like, the next morning, get up, and then, like, something blew up or something didn't work, and I start running off, and yeah, yeah, I and mean, then you don't get it? Like, nah. So, I mean, all, my, all, all the people that I know very closely who know I'm like this just know that, so nobody's upset by it by any means. But, yeah, just to know that, like, I'm always thinking. So, if it happens to be, you know, Saturday night, like, and I come across something that I think is for you, like, you will definitely get a message from me.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. So that's one one of the things you told me that was really interesting. Like you told me, you know, you had these experiences as a woman in a male dominated arena. Like you know, we had had a lot. It's the age of the feminism. This is the age of you know, women rising up and and, and you know, speaking their truth and about their experiences. People, people, minorities in general, you know, any any type of marginalized community, whether it be a woman, an African American, an immigrant whoever the case may be, but tell me, like, I, I really want I want you to dive deep into these stories. Like I want to know what it is like having a seat at that table when you're at Nike and Reebok and all these other places. And you're like literally the only woman at the table. Like I, I want to know what that's all about.
1: I actually was recently having this conversation with a couple friends of mine, but right now I might be the only female owner in the business at the moment. Wow. I'm not sure if there's somebody else. If there is, and you happen to hear this podcast, please come find me because I would love to meet you <laughs> and connect. And so, it is a unique experience because it is something that I don't have a lot of reference points to share with. And just any any female who is working in a predominantly male dominated industry, you just you know that there there's a reality to sort of a boys clubness thing going on that sometimes you feel like it's very hard to break through some of those barriers. I experienced it when I was in banking. It tends to be a very male dominated industry. A lot of fashion, a lot of sneakers, continues to be predominantly male dominated also. And so it, it is something that I think we collectively, those of us in the industry, those of us wanting to break into the industry have to do better to help each other grow, right? And so it's about creating more opportunities and creating more Uh, space for people to really communicate why it is the way that it is and how that we help to make some changes because I really believe that diversity of opinions diversity of experiences is what makes organizations great right and I just
0: don't understand why that's not common sense though like how how is that not if you're a smart business person how is diversity and everything you just said not common sense
1: I think it's because a lot of times businesses are just ingrained organizations, right? So like if we look at like huge institutions, right? Right now we're like we're pushing for institutional change on so many different levels right. in America, right? right? In in all these different very large institutions that sometimes seem, you know, too big to fail or too big to make change in, right? And I think it's because like those things have been built those ways over years, decades century right. sometimes right? right and so even within corporations or or businesses it's kind of the same thing and so sometimes when you don't have that diversity already in there then you don't even know what you're missing right and so it really it really creates a intellectual vacuum right and so you don't even know that you're in that vacuum until something crazy happens where from the outside looking in it's like well how is it possible that you didn't know that you know the Gucci blackface sweater was like a terrible idea, right? And, you know, from the outside looking in, it's like super clear that this is a terrible idea, but the people who were in inside the room didn't know that because they don't have that exposure, right? And so like, it's possible for these vacuums to to be created. It's hard to identify that they exist until something usually really big happens, right? And so for for all of us I think the thing is is to really take a look at ourselves within organizations to really examine organizations as an overall and see if we are continuing to create a environment where there is a a vacuum that you know ultimately at some point is going to burst right sure. and that's how I think we end up in these bad places and these like things have to happen that are tipping points but hopefully you know not everyone it's like one person puts their hand on a fire. Like hopefully everyone has doesn't have to touch the fire to know that it's like a terrible idea. Right. So if we've seen you know some some other organizations get burned or other things like that, that hopefully it gives us perspective to say, hey, we're not we're not perfect. Our company is And ultimately, all we can we can ask for of people organizations is that they're cognizant of what needs fixing and are working towards fixing it. And so I'm hopeful that that's you know what this moment can do and. And to that point, like, hey, if they're, you know, like I said earlier, like other female retailers out there that are in this space, like, please come find me because I would love to talk to you. Because I think that's something where, like, again, finding people that you can speak with, grow with, and for us to all be able to work together is kind of how we get out of continuing a a negative pattern, Right.
0: Yeah, I was watching that Netflix show. It's called not show, but it's a a documentary. It's uh, called Hip Hop and Fashion. It talks about Misa Hilton. It was another woman. She had a brand called Walkerware. There was a couple other people on that documentary. I think Bevy Smith was on it. But particularly Walkerware, she was saying, like, yo, I had to hide behind my brand, like for like the first couple of years because people like if they would have known it was a woman they would not have taken me serious like i wouldn't have grown you know i wouldn't have gotten the male support that i needed and i was just like really like you you don't you don't know what you don't know because you think fashion and you think women you know like automatically men yeah of course men wear fashion but you don't realize how much men dominate the fashion industry and the apparel industry you know what i'm saying yeah
1: and i think also especially in this field like sneakers it's a lot A lot more dominated by males, in particular. So, like, I guess it really does matter, like segments of the fashion industry, and then especially just because so much of sneaker culture is influenced by sports, right? And you know, like sports is predominantly still male dominated, right? So, like, you know, the NBA players get paid, you know, an exponentially larger dollar amount than WNBA players, and that carries over in pretty much every professional sport you can think of. So, I, I do think that there's still a lot of a disparity, and that needs to be addressed. That you know the only way we do that is to continue to kind of push and and you know really it's something where we're pushing but we also need allies within organizations to to help create those spaces so that people can have their voices heard and in their um and that they're you know given a chance to to fill those roles or be involved in those conversations. Right. What's
0: something crazy you've gone through? Like what's, tell me a story, like as a, as a woman at the table where you've had to, you really just kind of side-eyed and you're just like, yo, this is, something's got to give. It doesn't even make sense.
1: I don't know if I've, I've directly experienced anything.
0: Well, what is that, what is that table like? Like
1: what? Super blatant, but like, just, just things like, for example, like, like I've been called not recently, this was back in my banking days, but you know, I was called Lucy Lou. Oh my God. And if you're a woman, especially if you are a person of color that you experience where people, you know, maybe don't even necessarily know that they're in the wrong. Right. And just that perception of how like. You there's just a lot of bias, right? And I think figuring out how to navigate that bias and to to create your own and have that be known is one of the challenges that you know we all face. Whether you're a female, whether you're a person of color, whether you're you know, for example, even the fact that I got involved in this business and it's a family-owned business, so my parents started it. So you know, there was a lot of things that I dealt with internally, externally, et cetera, where people felt like you know I I was not qualified to be in the position that I am, because it is effectively just, you know, I happen to be so-and-so's kid, and so here I am. Having to overcome those those implicit biases is demonstrated by, like, you just have to keep at it, and you have to show that you belong here, and that you have the ability to execute, and that you have valid, you know,
0: have, have you,
1: acumen or or you know or that you are an expert in whatever it is that you're doing right, right. whether you're you know in, in your scenario where it's like hey you know i i'm not asking you to select me because of xyz reasons i'm asking you to select me to help you with this campaign because i'm actually the best person for this job right, right. so i think continuing to kind of push on that end is has been you know one of the challenges that i think so many of us face to overcome those instances but you know, little instances like the Lucy Lou thing happen all the time right. here, there, and the other. And I know so many people experience it and never lost that thought process.
0: Right. So, so let's talk about let's talk about society a little bit more. You know, you know, let hopping back over to sneaker culture. You guys just did a launch. I was just looking. I think I texted you last night. I said, "Yo, did the Air Jordan Retro twelve sell out? Like, I love that color." I don't know what it is about black and gold that just gets me going. But what is that? What is that? What is the hoopla behind sneaker drops? Like, where does it come from? And what does it do for a brand? How does it, you know, what what is your insight on, on sneaker drops? Cause I'm always like, well, why do people wait in line for sneakers? Like, what, where does this, where did this come from? We didn't do that when I was growing up and Jordans were hot. Like, but maybe in high school, a little bit. But, but now it's just like you have people waiting in line and selling tickets to, to hold your spot and it's like a hustle. Like it's like a, a culture within a hustle and then a hustle within a culture. So like what is what is your scoop on
1: that? I think it's a couple different things, right? So like the hype is real and the hype gets fed because it's at the end of the day, supply and demand, right? So demand is exponentially higher than supply. I think like probably the most hype released recently were these Dior Jordan ones that were damn near impossible to get, right? And I think if I remember correctly, like Dior said that they had like 7 million people re- enter raffles for the shoes, wow. like 7 million. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, hype is real. It's it's based on... And how
0: much did those retail for?
1: The retail was like 1,200, I want to say. Yeah. So they're not inexpensive shoes by any means, right? But yeah, something like 7 million people tried to, tried to get a pair. And then now in the resale market, it's like triple 10 times triple that ten. Amount, right? ten like yeah 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 like they're like a hundred thousand dollars like whatever it is so yeah so i think the thing is is that there were moments where it was like this in the past but i think two things changed one is sneaker culture became much bigger than just like a niche thing for collectors um and even a few years ago, like there was an entire exhibit at um, the Brooklyn Museum around just like sneaker culture and like all of these iconic shoes that came out in the history around sneakers. And so it's it's really become and transcended you know, its origins. And I think when you when you add that and you know that there are sneaker heads in every country, every continent, every age group, right? It, the market is super, super big. And I think with that also is people who recognize like to your point, like the hustle, mm-hmm. right? People who recognize that there's an opportunity in that if you can insert yourself somewhere in the supply chain, right? So the resale market is multi billions of dollars, and there are huge companies that exist, like Flight Club and and Stadium Goods and Goat, and these guys who are entirely in the secondary market and have you know crazy multi million dollar valuations, right? And then you have you know. Brands like Nike that are amazing with their storytelling have this amazing heritage of product that they can rely on, you know, in some way, like who knew that in 1984, you know, MJ was going to come around and become the phenom that he is. And that first shoe that he came out, be, you know, a shoe that we're still like coveting today. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's like a little bit of, of just how big the market has gotten and how certain brands have been able to really just push an amazing story that they that they you know fortunately were able to get in on right like mj originally i think was supposed to go to converse right so just like amazing things like that that i think have created this environment around sneakers and the fact that you know all the more so now there's so many ways to get in front of an audience digital access to people is a way that it didn't exist in the past right and so It created a lane, not even just for these like huge resellers, but individual people, right? And so, you know, you can flip a Supreme box hoodie or you can flip a pair of Jordans and make more money possibly from that one sale than you would working a week. And I think that's the reason why there is so much energy around the culture because it's a combination of people who have gotten to learn it, and that market expanding and also the Im- immense like business opportunity that as that market expanded, it presented to people in all different walks of life in all different age groups. you know i know I know a ton of kids who use you know reselling as a way to help pay for college Mm -hmm. tuition Mm -hmm. right and so it just i think all of these things are probably why you know sneakers have become one of the most valuable you know currencies in the market
0: yeah so so it's like the money and then it's like the passion behind being actually a sneakerhead and then like hey i can tap into this without any experience without any formal education i can teach myself i already know all about the sneakers because i'm i'm a Sneakerhead, you know, sneaker sneaker freaker, (laughs) whatever they call it, and I've been one. Yeah, I
1: mean it's crazy.
0: I've been one ever since I was a kid, and I can make good money doing it. I mean, I saw—I remember the Yeezys. I had just started working for Barney's when the Yeezys came out. They sold out probably within the first ten minutes. It was like a raffle. It was my first day working there, and I remember getting on uh, eBay, and like they were literally going for triple the price. In less than 24 hours, and I'm like, yo, that is some, that is a good return on your investment. Like, <laughs> and low key, I really think it was the people that worked there. I think the the employees just like bought half of the stock, like on discount, and then <laughs> resold them. But I'm just like, bro, that's that's a good hustle right there. So I, I get you. It's, it's it's really the money and then the 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 passion behind, you know, being actually a, a sneakerhead. You know, you you feel you feel good.
1: And I think the other thing is is that there's there's a camaraderie and a language that are spoken by people who know about sneakers, right, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. The
0: camaraderie is like,
1: yeah, absolutely, and so I see that right? like the fact that there are so many people who identify and connect with. With the culture, and I don't even sit here and purport that I'm like, you know, a sneakerhead, right? Like, honestly, like, I I wouldn't consider myself one. I haven't met real sneakerheads. They are like walking encyclopedias of shoes, right? That they can sit there and talk about every moment in MJ's career that has been like defining. They can sit there and compare the the last and the tongue and the stitching between every iteration of a shoe that has come out and they're experts right i am by no means on that level and i have so much respect for people who are because you can just tell like they have they have been in this following this their entire lives the thing that i find so amazing is that there's so many young people i meet these days especially you know staff that work in the store customers who are too young to even have been like around for when Jordan was playing but yet they know so much about him his experience even just like during corona like espn put out the last dance and it was like one of the most watched documentaries you know ever if not you know the most watched on espn i think for sure but it just goes to show like these are compelling stories that these are you know hero moments and people identify so much with that and it just it creates this like really cool atmosphere and i think that's the other thing that you know, everyone's looking for community and people want to to to, you know, share and show off why certain things have value to you. It's like, oh, I love this, da da da. I got it when I was traveling to here. And it's like that same thing, but people identify with sneakers and that one and can share like why this shoe is their favorite because of this moment in their life or or how it ties into you know jordan flu games or like you know things like that so i think that that's like the other really cool thing where there aren't that many products i think that do that for people
0: right 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 yeah so let's talk about like uh actual sneaker brand well we, we were talking about we were talking about sneaker culture but let's talk about sneaker brands like how like i consult for i've consulted for a handful of sneaker brands and obviously i have you know Play an important role in, in shaping brands in general as a brand strategist and you know i always talk to brands about how to increase their market share and you know ultimately you know it always baffles me why some brands fail and others don't, even sometimes when brands listen to your expert advice. What is your take on that? Let's, let's have that conversation. Why do you, how do you think brands, because you're, you're very, you play a very important role in, you know, brands increasing their market share. And then you also see firsthand brands failing as well. So like, what, what is your take on that?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things actually, that I always want to challenge folks that I communicate with at the brands, that you know like really take advantage of the fact that you know, if your retail partners are kind of on the front lines, right, so we're interacting with your customer day in day out, hundreds of them day in day out right, yeah. and so you know let's really have a have a conversation around what works what doesn 't work, and why those things work and don 't work right and and i and i I can only speak for what gets communicated to me also right so if if I think a lot of times where brands go awry is, it's very similar to the conversation we were having earlier about making sure that the right people are in the room, giving you perspective that you need as an organization. Sometimes people come up with an idea and it sounds great in a bubble, but then once you actually bring it to market, it's like, whose idea was that? And this is terrible, right? right?" I think making sure that you're continuing to engage within, your communities, your customer base, and brands can't do it the same way that a retailer does because I can only speak to, you know, this New Jersey, New York area with full expertise, right? Right. I can't say that I'm an expert on what's going on in Baltimore, right? I can't say that I'm an expert in what's going on in Texas or, or Vegas or whatever. So, like, lean on us collectively as your retail partners to help get that story across, right? And two is... Going going back to a lot of the the female conversation that we had earlier, you know, female sneaker heads are a smaller percentage of the population, but there's still a ton of them. And I think ever increasingly, there are so many women who are getting interested into, you know, like this streetwear sneaker. I feel like that's an area where, you know, women haven't really been made a priority. And a lot of times brands will treat their female line as kind of a side thought or an afterthought, right? I heard one time somebody say to me, shrink it and pink it. <laughs> and that was that was essentially like their their like go to market strategy, right? Like, let's make a version of this in women's sizes with pink all over it, right? And that works sometimes. I don't hate pink, but it's also not like I don't run around wearing pink all day just because I happen to be a female, right? right? So right. I think that's one area that is a tremendous area for growth for a lot of the brands that we work with, and something that you know we continue to to want to emphasize and and work with our brand partners on that end. but yeah, I think there's opportunities to continue to be closer to, mm-hmm. and I think it's even one of those things where even within within markets, right like your customer base in Soho is going to be totally different than maybe somebody. In Newark then it's going to be somebody then in the Bronx or in Queens or Brooklyn, right and we're just talking about you know 10 square miles right so you can imagine how much more diverse it becomes when we're getting outside of the tri-state area and all of that So it's just it's really about making sure that you are Authentically engaging with customers. I think one of the biggest challenges For us as a retailer, and I can only imagine it's exponentially worse as a brand, is kind of the hype is almost too real now. And so because of hype being so, so, so extreme, product being still so limited, and bots and all this other stuff happening that a lot of people are becoming increasingly discouraged because you feel like you can never get the shoes that you want. Uh, And I know that that's a challenge that we struggle with in terms of how we release product to try to do the best we can by our customers. Like things
0: that are bots, we
1: openly say on our site, like we're going to cancel
0: your orders and like all of them, right? Things that are boxed? Bots. Oh, bots. Got you. I thought you said boxed. The whole time I'm like, oh, boxed. Like boxed, you know, the box brands that like do the, I think that would be a cool idea though. Like get a a, a sneaker box. Somebody needs to take that idea if it's not already in production. Like you get a, you know how you can subscribe for the beauty boxes and like
1: Box, oh, okay. Earth yeah, Earth yeah, box yeah. And,
0: and get your, get a different sneaker every month or something like that. That'd be, I thought that's what you were saying If somebody was.
1: Oh yeah, no, no, bots, like computer yeah. bots that eat up all of the, yeah. And that's how like you, you end up with, you know, people who are able to secure tons of pairs of releases and then other people who can't get any at all, because if you're a human checking out, it's damn near impossible to check out within one second. Right. Right. So things like that. So like, you know, we actively, Make an effort internally to try to minimize them as much as we can. But you know, we're we're one retailer in, and I by no means am my computer engineer. So our software engineer. So my my ability to 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 deal with hackers is is a little limited on that. Right, yeah. but
0: but you do your due you diligence. <laughs>
1: yeah, we we try our best, right? And even as a company policy, right? We and things like you know, you can only get one pair like per customer. Things like that that we try to do so that we can you know, try to take care of as many folks as possible. So we're making that effort on our end. I know that the brands are struggling on their end to try to make sure that shoes are getting to consumers, like real customers at the end of the day, right? But that's one of the things that I, I know that as an industry has been a big challenge. And, and the folks who do that better than the others, I think are going to be well positioned to continue to, to build with with their customer base, right? Like you can only take so many L's after a while, you just decide that you're going to give up, I think. Mm-hmm
0: so mm-hmm. yeah yep so so tell me about the, the process of building out a store though like especially in New York City like that seems like a tedious process that I couldn't even imagine myself like I I was talking to another uh, colleague she's actually going to be on the podcast as well well if you guys listen to episode one Melissa Gonzalez of the Linus group was saying something similar you know she's in that same space of doing build out physically you know And, you know, post-COVID, you know, pre-COVID, no matter what time it is, it is a tedious process of just especially in New York City, like building out a storefront or a pop-up or whatever it is that you're doing. Like walk us through that process. Where are you at? Like I know you have a, a couple of stores relaunching at the moment. You know, things had to pause. Things were creative at one point. I get text messages from you like, hey, what do you think about this floor? And then it's like, you know, that's the cool, fun stuff, getting opinions and doing aesthetically pleasing things. And then there's the challenging things like being up to code and, you know, having to hire certain union contractors to make sure everything gets done right. And, you know, so 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 walk us through that, you know, for for the people that are considering opening up storefronts in, in New York City at some point, maybe retail when it starts to reemerge. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: that's one of the, the things we talk about all the time in a more big picture conversation, right? People are always like, you know is is brick and mortar dead?" and you know is everything going to be digital, and nobody's going to ever want to walk into a store again?" And I think the answer to that is no, otherwise, I wouldn't have physical stores, and you know in January of this year, we started construction on our
0: demihm
1: location so. Mm-hmm if I thought the answer was brick and mortar was gonna be completely dead, we wouldn't go down this path, right? I think the thing is, is that brick and mortar has changed just as much as digital's role in our life has changed. And some of those changes have been pushed forward because of COVID, right? And so we saw a huge growth in online, but I also saw huge growth in our stores once we were able to reopen after the shutdown. So I think there is a lane for both. People want experiences, sometimes those experiences can be digital, but sometimes those experiences are IRL, right? Mm-hmm. And I think brick and mortar is a lane to be able to provide that, you know, full immersive 360 experience, right? You can touch things, you can smell things, you can you can hear things, you can be kind of enveloped within an environment. And that hopefully is an environment that speaks to you as a consumer. So brick and mortar, in some form, I think it's here to study. That being said, it is super challenging because there are a tremendous amount of fixed costs that come across, come along with that, right? Like rent in New York is not cheap, and that is something where it's a challenge, right? The sales force that you need, you know, you have to have folks you know, staffed up when it's busy, but you also have to have folks staffed up when it's not busy, right? And you don't necessarily know when you're making schedules weeks in advance, how busy a certain day is gonna be or not be, right? right. Uh, There's so many unknown variables that kind of go into Operating a brick and mortar that are a lot of expenses that you have to be prepared for when you're in the actual like build-out of a retail store process if you've done it before This will be my fifth one you get to lean on the experience of what you did in the previous iteration that worked didn't work But if you haven't absolutely I say, you know, it might be expensive, but you want to engage in experts, right? so That's why you hire architects. That's why you hire designers. That's why you hire brand strategists. You want to engage experts to help you navigate what you're trying to do if this is your first go at it. And they'll be able to give you... Design ideas, but they'll also be able to help you walk through maybe some practicalities, right? Like you don't want the fitting room here because it's right next to this and that makes no sense versus you want the fitting rooms to be in this area where it's really enticing. You want people to try things on. Usually the conversion rate on apparel if somebody tries something on is exponentially higher than if they never try it on at all. Things like that, right? So, just kind of like, there's a reason the, the milk and the eggs are in the back of a supermarket, right? Because they want you to walk through the whole market to get the shit that you came there for, right. right? And in the meantime, you end up picking up snacks and chips and other stuff that you have no business buying, but it was on the way, right? right. And so like there is a a retail marketing strategy right. that comes with physical footprints and how stores are laid out and that's knowledge that you want to make sure that you're tapping into, right? And so it's 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 a ton of work, but do your homework and engage folks who are professionals to help you along the way. And then the other thing is just expect everything to take twice as long and cost twice as much, right? So this year, I absolutely got screwed by COVID in so many ways, because once we took the store down in January, then corona hit while we were in the middle of construction. So that halted construction. So we now are open, but all of the interior isn't 100% done. And we had to make a decision to soft open just to be able to function versus wait for all of the parts to come in. We had ordered some custom lighting features that had to be made in um, China. And then when COVID was bad over theirs, all of theirs factories shut down and that slowed up our production line, right? So like, there's just, it's one of those things where you just have to, take everything with a grain of salt. If anyone has lived through like a home renovation, it's kind of the same thing, right? You're like, we're gonna move this over here. And then all of a sudden you discover that there's like a pipe or a load bearing wall that you can't actually take down or anything like that. And so that forces you to to re-strategize, re-plan out. And you're like, okay, well the idea was an open concept kitchen. How do we keep it open concept feeling except I can't move this wall. Can we move that wall, right? So it's it's having that flexibility also that I think is really important.
0: Right, 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 right. No, that's that's meat and potatoes right there. Cause I the thought of living in New York City enough and, and paying rent and, and getting having your own place <laughs> like is is it's stressful enough. I couldn't imagine being having multiple leases throughout the city and doing build outs and having to manage staff and things like that, you know. That's, that's, that's like G work right there. That's like, that's like gangster work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think actually that's one of my things, like you, one of the questions that I know that you wanted to touch on was like, you know, what contributes to, to brand success. And I feel like a lot of times people talk about the big picture things of like being authentic and having integrity as a brand and stuff like that, but it's equally up there because you cannot have one without the other and you cannot have the other without the one is like, you need to have good business fundamentals, right? So, you know, my background in banking, I think I understand finance. I spend a lot of time doing valuation. So I understand, you know, business dev and opportunities in that regard. But like making sure that you pay taxes on time, that you're managing your cash flow so that you have the funds to pay those things on time, mm-hmm. right? Like it does not matter whether or not there is, you know, you had a good quarter or not, payroll taxes are due quarterly, right? It doesn't matter whether you had a good quarter or not. Your real estate taxes are due annually, right? It, and things like that that are so critically important for you to maintain and manage your business that a lot of times people kind of work on the building of the brand, the integrity, the authenticity, the that side of it so much, and they don't spend enough time on to your point, like those meat and potatoes things that can absolutely sink or sp- make you sink or swim, right? Mm-hmm. And I think especially in this market, also like we see businesses that are not able to manage this cash flow crunch that has been created by COVID. Those are the ones that are struggling, and those are big businesses and those are small businesses, right? It's Brooks Brothers and J Crew just as much as it is a small mom and pop. And so I think understanding. You know, what's coming in, what's going out and making sure that you are managing that, you know, as a number one priority every single day in line with those other elements is really what helps you survive those lean times because those lean times inevitably are coming. Right. Any entrepreneur knows that there are good days and bad days and those bad days sometimes hit extra hard. You will not be able to weather the bad days if you're if your finances aren't on track and if you haven't prepared yourself for a bad
0: day. Yeah. That's, that's, whew, tell me about it. Like I I think that's one of the biggest things that creatives, you know, this is just on a sidebar note. Like I consult a lot of creatives and it's like, they don't understand that you have to put just as much, if not more, into your financial game plan as you do your creative, aesthetic side of things. Because otherwise, you won't be able to stay afloat. You can create all day, but if you don't have a strategy for your the financial aspect of how you're going to make money and how you're going to monetize this, this as a business, you know, you you just won't stay afloat. You know, and I think all of what yeah. you just said is 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 probably key to you having started in investment banking, but you know
1: yeah I think it's I think it's part and parcel with kind of like what what my background is and what you know is what is not that difficult for me from the perspective of like I sat there and I read you know tons of financial statements that you know they're not fun reads by any means right like it's not exciting to read these (laughs) right but it prepared me to be able to get through that grunt work and it's grunt work right like Dealing with this side is not the fun side. If you're an entrepreneur, usually this is not the, you don't wake up in the morning super excited to deal with legal paperwork or taxes or whatever it is, right. right? But you realize that if you don't deal with that and give that the same amount of energy like you were just saying, it gets in the way of the stuff that really is the fun stuff, right? That really is the, the stuff that gets you up in the morning and gets you excited. So it's like make sure your foundation is good before you start worrying about what pink color your room is going to be, right? right. And I think I think that would be one of my like key takeaways in terms of if if there's any tidbit that anyone who has heard this takes away is just if you're interested in being an entrepreneur, really do your homework and make sure that you are fully aware and cognizant of of how much work it is and what that work is, right? It's not just the the fun creative stuff, it's also a lot of the the mundane Mm day-to-day sitting in front of an excel but that's super important if not
0: equally important -hmm. as we close i have just have two more questions for you you know what are some of your strategies that you employ to kind of keep you know customers coming back and studying their buying habits and i'll give you an example this may not particularly relate this might be a double part question but like you know I always tell say to myself, I would never start a brick and mortar. And this, might, you may disagree. You might be able to give me some better insight. I would. I feel like I would never start a brick and mortar if I did not own it. Is that something that you guys have been able to take advantage of? Is is the the real estate aspect and the property taxes of, you know, being able to offset some of that cost or make it a better long term investment? Because, for instance, Barney's, I think that's what killed Barney's because they've had to pay. It was almost like I, it was some astronomically high multi million dollar monthly rent or yearly rent. And I and I don't even think they were breaking even on that. So that's why they got in debt so bad.
1: Yeah, I think their rent was like ten million dollars and then all of a sudden it jumped to twenty million. But you know, we don't own I I do have landlords, we do not own the majority of the stores that we have that we work out of. And that's, you know, part and parcel with like opportunity and also the cost of real estate, especially commercial real estate in New York is super duper high. So I am not on Jeff Bezos level yet. So that might not be in the coins for a little while. I mean, uh, in the cards for a little while. But I think the thing about when you make those decisions is, again, just really making sure you understand your cash flow, right? How much you think you're going to be able to sell, how much that rent is. You know, making sure that those percentage makes sense, right? Like, a lot of times people and and I usually like equate conversations like this to things that people have experienced. So it's like your personal rent, right? You probably could have rented that two bedroom, but you sat there and you were like, oh, this is like a little bit more than I want to spend," right? It gets in the way of this, or like, what if I get sick? What if I get laid off? Like, all of a sudden, like, you now have to be super stressed out about where you're living. Is that worth it? Like, yeah maybe I'll get the one bedroom, right? right? Like, that. Those are like real conversations that people have with themselves, like multiply that in the business environment, right? Like, what do I think my my um, expenses are going to be? You know, it sounds amazing to have a giant store, but like having a giant store means having a giant staff. So it's okay. Well, if I operated a smaller store, I could do it with a team of five. If I operate a much larger space, I need a team of 25, right? So am I able to carry that payroll expense, right? Things like that, that have to be taken into consideration when you're making these decisions. Um, one of the earlier things that I did when I came on board was we used to have a store on 125th. The lease was coming due. And ultimately we walked away from that property and we were there for a very long time since the
0: 19th 125th Street? <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow.
1: And the reason we walked away was because, again, it was a very similar situation to what like Barney's was describing, right? Where the rent had gone up very significantly and I wasn't confident That it made financial sense versus going somewhere else, opening something else. And it was a really like bittersweet decision to say that we're not going to renew the lease. And at the time, you know, I know my dad was pretty upset because he was like emotionally like tied into there because that was. And and what
0: year did that one close? Did you guys close that one?
1: I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but it was in the early process once I got on board. So this is around the 2010. 11 time frames. that's the one that and i remember
0: that's the olympic that was olympic town right yeah was. that's the one yeah. i remember Yep.
1: okay mm-hmm. so so yeah so we decided to walk away from that space because it ultimately the economics didn't make sense and regardless of emotions being involved the math wasn't on our side and we had to make the right business decision to say mm-hmm. that 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 wasn't the right place for us and we needed to walk away and explore different avenues right mm-hmm. and I think walking away from that space actually gave us the ability to open up in Newark. And so we opened a location in Newark in in late 2013. And so kind of like one door closes, another door opens. But it's always about, you know, a lot of times business, you have to remove your emotions from certain calculations and really look at it. Um, objectively and say, you know, what, what is it that we're ultimately trying to achieve as an organization and does this fit that, right? And does it not overall encumber the business so much that it then doesn't allow you to function if there is a rainy day or it prevents you from opening other doors. So, you know, that sort of thing happens all the time. And it's, it's absolutely something that we take into consideration and businesses do. And I think that's how you navigate and stay stay the course of time because you're being nimble and you're adjusting as the market conditions adjust around you so and every entrepreneur i think knows that right like you come up with the best plan and then you go off and do something completely different because you know a plan on paper is one thing but execution reality is something completely different sometimes facts facts
0: facts 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 you know i took so many nuggets away from this this was like everything I need it. I'm pretty sure the listeners are feeling the same way. Like, CSOG, you, your story's your story's butter. Like <laughs> and I was like <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean I hope I hope it
1: was helpful.
0: I mean, that's nuggets right there. Like, and I, I I'm like listen I'm like, yo, I know I've seen Olympic town before. Like I I've seen it somewhere. Like from when I first got to New York around oh seven, like and I would take my little trips to Harlem.
1: Mm-hmm. I know
0: I have seen that Olympic town somewhere.
1: We were diagonally
0: across the street from where Red Rooster was. Oh wow! So right yeah. near Whole Foods. That's probably where. Yeah. yeah probably.
1: I don't even know if there was a Whole. No, no, no. There.
0: Whole Foods is new. Whole Foods is that's yeah, like yeah, New yeah, Harlem. Okay. Like. Okay. Fact, okay. Like, it was like, I was like,
1: I am pretty sure I saw a Starbucks. Yeah. Like.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Starbucks. guess when you knew the Whole Foods was coming when you saw the Starbucks, right? <laughs> uh,
1: Absolutely. But, I think. I think they follow. Yeah, you.
0: that's that's what they do. But yeah, that's that's crazy. So I guess in clothes, like. I guess five key takeaways uh, that you can give us for an apparel brand to succeed. Like since you're one of those, since one of you, you are one of the key factors to, you're, you're what every brand wants when they come to me. They're like, I just want sales. Can you get us in stores? Can you get us in stores? You know, so I'm always like, well, there's, there's a lot that comes before you get to the point where a store would want to pick you up. Because I usually get the brands when they're either emerging or they need a little bit of help or whatever the case may be, or they're going through a rebrand of some sort. So what would be your your keys to, you know, for an apparel brand to succeed?
1: Okay, some of the things that we look at and we talk about internally when we're looking at brands that we want to bring in, pick up, et cetera, it's one, are they actually a brand, right? And what does that mean? Is there a story behind the merchandise that you're putting out where there's an authentic voice there, right? So sometimes uh, we'll get line sheets for, you know, Somebody might have a clever saying and they'll throw it on a shirt, right? Or they will make a graphic tee that will touch on like a moment that's going on culturally right now, right? Like I can just imagine like, there are probably t-shirts being made right now with the word entanglement, right?
0: Right. Um, (laughs) Shout out to Will and Jada.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, so, okay, that shirt in and of itself might sell, right? Mm. But does one entanglement tee mean that you have a brand? I don't think so, right? And so really thinking through like, do you actually have a brand and what is that brand? And are you communicating that very clearly? And then in addition to having that brand, it's okay, well, do you have a customer base, right? So like, are you making something that people actually want beyond just it's a gimmick, right? So it's easy to come up maybe, you know, with a one-time gimmick, but are you able to repeat that? Because that's how you you build And engage with the customer base right so that because as a retailer for the most part right we're looking for brands that we can align ourselves with that meets the aesthetic of the business that meets our customers and we want to create a discovery component for for them right so it's like hey you might be coming in here to buy this pair of jordans and you know a ton about nikes and jordans and Puma and Adidas and whatever, right? But maybe you've never heard of XYZ brand before, right? You're learning that brand by coming into our environment and seeing how all of this meshes and fits with a streetwear vibe, right? And that's our demographic. So if you can build a brand to go along with that, I think, like, then you've gotten something, right? And it doesn't mean that you need to have, you know, your stuff in Barney's, right, for it to be a brand, but it's just these elements that, that, allow you to really hit within within your customer base. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, I don't know if I would consider these like five things, but the other really big thing, again, kind of going back to like having good business, right? So is your backend setup that you can actually deal with a retailer? So let's say I, I go, okay, great. You know, we're going to bring you in. We're going to do a light test buy. Let's buy 20 red shirts and 20 white shirts and 20 black shirts, right? Okay. And it sells out in a week and I call you back and I'm like, okay, great. This worked really great. Now we want to buy 100 of each of them. Like, are you able to fill that order? Mm-hmm. That is very important for retailers to be able to work with the brand where your back end is set up that you are able to grow. Like, and really, you know, if you tell me, Hey, yeah, sure. But I can only get it to you in, in a year from now, like that might as well be, you know, 20 years from right, now right. because you know how quickly the industry moves, Right. And so Things like that where you are really preparing your back end to be able to grow and so that you are developing those relationships with the brands, with your retail partners, and then having the ability to be flexible on that, right? Like there there are many, many occasions. Flexibility, that is a
0: big word.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There have been many, many instances since I've been working here that there have been brands that have been super, super hot, but they're back end was such a mess that it was almost not even worth working with them, right? If I order white shirts and you send me purple shirts, like that's not what we ordered, right? If I order 10 smalls and you send me 200, you know, extra larges, like that's also not what we ordered, right? So things like that, that you would imagine like wouldn't happen, but it totally happens. And so you want to make sure that your business is good. Just think about as a customer, if you went on our website and ordered a medium t-shirt and I sent you, you know, a completely different style, size, color, you would look at me like, are you crazy, right? Give me my money back, back, right? So it's, it's almost the same instance. And that has totally happened to us in the past, right? And so you can just imagine, like, hey, if I'm going to get an order of, you know, purple shirts, instead of white shirts, and that's totally not what we asked for. And you guys can't, you know, one off mistakes sometimes happens, right? But if your business back end is such a mess that you don't even know that you've sent that to us, like, Makes it very difficult for a retailer to work with you. And so, just those are some of the things that as you're trying to get your foot in the door. And I think, again, on the point of flexibility, like if you believe in your brand, okay, go out there and, and put it out there, but go out there on a limb, right? Like just be like, hey, I'll send you 10 shirts. You guys don't even have to pay for it. Let me know if they sell, right? Things like that where you have to be creative to try to get your foot in the door if you're not an established brand. That's
0: called strategy, that's right? Sure. There. Yeah, strategy.
1: But mm-hmm. yeah. Sure, that if you If you develop a rapport enough with the buyer that they're willing to test it, and you make it easy for them to bring that test to the table within the organization, get your foot in the door and worry about making your money later because you realize that this short-term output or short-term, like, you know, giving away a few shirts is going to help you get an order later that is going to be tens of thousands of dollars, right? Or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so just think through a, a strategy that makes it easier for somebody to, to give you that shot. And then once you get that shot, don't squander that shot, right? And so I think that those are some of the recommendations that I would have for people who are looking to build their own brand and figuring out how they go to market with that product. That is, that is
0: some. Juicy gems right there. Like you, you hit the nail on the head again. Like <laughs> especially with like the <laughs> flexibility. Lose the ego, y'all. Don't give the buyers a headache. Don't give the brand strategists a headache because we're the middleman between you and the buyer, and we're trying to tell you the things that the buyers want to see and hear. And then you're coming and telling us that you're hot stuff. Yeah, you're hot stuff. But you're a one in a hundred thousand brands. So. You know, there's, there's a lot. I mean, we go to the trade shows together, Christine. And that's, you, We see it firsthand. There's so many new brands every single season, multiple times yeah. a year. So, like, if you want that shot, make it easy for the buyer or the store owner to, to
1: work. Absolutely. I love that you just said lose the ego. Like, <laughs> put that in there. Yeah. Because... Um, a lot of times that feedback, you know, whether it's feedback from a buyer, whether it's feedback from a brand strategist, that feedback is not meant to hurt your feelings. Like nobody's trying to, hurt your <laughs> to give you a hard time, right? But it's just, hey, like this doesn't work for this reason, or this doesn't work for us for that reason. Like take that to heart. Like people are giving you information that should help you do what you need to do, pivot the way that you need to pivot so that you can then solve it for whoever you're working with. Right. And I think that's the thing where a lot of times people take people take feedback negatively and personally, and it blocks your ability to then work with that retailer. Right. And you'll find, you know, especially in this retail apocalypse, there aren't too, too many of us. And so you're going to keep running into the same folks. So it is, it is pretty important that you develop a rapport. And if this does brand doesn't work, you know, don't take that personally. You know, I I see a lot of salespeople, for example, and they're like, hey, do you want to carry this? I'm like, oh, I don't think that's a fit for us. But later down the line, we end up working together because they have another brand that they're repping and that is a great fit for us, right? And so learning how to build relationships, not burn bridges and take feedback and work with it constructively, I think is the one other thing of like, absolutely what you said, like, you know, get your ego out of the way.
0: Because they're always watching, you know, the no's that you get are not unless it's somebody that you know is like the new girlfriend of an ex or something like that. And you're like, you just told me no because you know about my past. (laughs) Otherwise it's usually like, nah, like you said, no, not right now. It's just not a good fit, but let's stay in touch. Like keep me on your mailing list. Keep sending me your line sheets every season. I might see something a lot of times. And I learned this from buyers as well. They just want to see your consistency. They almost will always say no the first season because it's like, you gotta, all right. You just launched. You have, you, you don't, you haven't really done anything, made any sales. All right, this is hot. Give me a t-shirt, you know, and I'll, you know, I'll just hold on to it so I remember you, and then I can even wear it, you know, and 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 just to, to test the waters for you and see how people respond to me wearing it, you know. That's just, like you said, be strategic, you know. Give gift the buyers, gift the people that are gonna help push your product, give it away, say, Hey, sell us in your store. Don't even give me no money. Just, you know, hit me up. If it sells, then we could talk business, you know, all that. Yeah.
1: And it's also not like give away the whole cat. Yeah, right? no, no. like, yeah. Give away a glass of milk. Right. right? Like that sort of, thing. yeah. So, so yeah. And I think it's about to your point, right? Absolutely. Being, being creative and flexible in your approach, in receiving feedback and talk to lots of people. I think if you're in a position where you're trying to build a brand, you need to talk to too many people, right. right? Like like run your shirt idea around everybody, right? Like people that you think are your demographic, people you don't think are your demographic, people who are, you know, experts in streetwear to people who are know nothing about that and call sneakers, tennis shoes, right? Like talk to everybody, right? right? Yeah. And See what feedback you get, because that, again, you know, kind of like one of the themes of our conversation today is like diversity of experiences, viewpoints, and that's going to help inform whether or not you really have something here, whether or not you're on the right path, you know, whether your pricing makes sense, like all of these key determinants that impact your success as a brand.
0: Right. Thanks. Thank you for all your nuggets, my Christine, my homie.
1: Really good to see you and talk to you. I know,
0: right? That was Christine Nolan Building a Better Brand, Episode 4. A great conversation, as you could tell by our tone and how comfortable we were with one another. I love those conversations where you can just kick back with somebody you truly know and let your head out a little bit. And share your story and drop a few gems. Especially in the midst of an ever-evolving world just trying to get back on its two feet and recover from quite a few disruptions of the past 12 months. It's to be acknowledged that as millennial CEOs, Christine and I both have an untraditional way of running our businesses that includes having a listening ear, an open mind, and an attentive eye. It's an approach that helps to keep us understanding of our staff, spot on with trends, and for Christine... Easily accessible by the people that make up Noble as a company, an empowering way of management that bursts innovation and could prevent disconnection from key collaborators by way of collaborative workflows. You want to know my favorite takeaway from this episode? It was definitely the happenstance of getting a letter from the official Olympic committee and having to change their name from Olympic Town to Noble. Talk about a pivot after a forced rebrand. Christine revealed times in her journey as CEO of Noble where being serendipitous actually led her to new discoveries that not only helped her business, but also helped her to understand that you've got to put in the work and keep all of your hardcore business ducks in order so that you can actually get to enjoy all the fun, fabulous, and creative things that make having a brand so daggone sexy. There are so many layers and moving parts to getting yourself where you are today. Think about where you are today from the time you were born. All the things you've had to go through in life to get you to where you are today and to shape your life and to get you to all the knowledge and wisdom and memories that you hold today. Think about building your brand in the same way. Overnight successes don't just happen, but it's the overarching journey that makes it all worth the adventure. Because along the way is where you truly get to enjoy those golden moments of your success as you build. That's it. Those are the winning moments. Give yourself space to go through things that push you into changing and force you away from issues that may cause you to plummet in the future. And something super important that will help you maintain brand success is to get your business side of your endeavors in order ASAP. You may not want to handle all those things now, like legal documents, trademarks, copyrights, patents, forming of infrastructure, and taking time to secure things like partnerships. But handling your business on the front end will save you from a whole lot of hardship and allow you to enjoy the fruits of your labor without headache and missed opportunities in the future. Follow me on Instagram. I'm at Tony Triumph Official. Follow me on Twitter. I'm attempting to get more active on there. Still attempting to get more active on there. But if you want to hit me, best place to reach me is Instagram. Or, you know, if you have any brand related questions, requests, or even feedback about this podcast, feel free to hit me up at info at buildingabetterbrand.com. Till next time, y'all.